as we look at, at 2 Peter chapter 2, I just want to read verse 4 down to verse 10. And that would be, uh, we looked at part of these verses last week, but I um, want to continue today. So follow along in your Bibles as I read 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We've been looking at Second Peter chapter 2 and we've seen here in our study a couple things about false teachers. We've seen as we looked at the uh, way they operate, uh, the modus operandi of a false teacher, we looked at the sphere of their operation in verse 1, and we saw that it's not only among the people of Israel, it says, but false, pre- false prophets also arose among the people, speaking of Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you, speaking of the church. So that's the sphere, and it talks about their stealthiness in verse 1. It says that they do this secretly. They don't come in and announce themselves to be a false teacher. They never do that. They come in, they creep in, it says, unbeknownst to anyone. And they begin to introduce destructive heresies, things that could even go as far as damning people's souls is the idea if they follow their teachings. And then we saw the sin of their operation because they denied their master who bought them, swifting, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They denied the ultimate sin is to deny Jesus as Lord. That's the sin that will take you to hell every time. If you go to your deathbed denying that Jesus is Lord and denying his power to save you, that is a sin that will be um, eternally paid for in hell. You'll be cast into hell and endure all eternity of punishment under the wrath of God by denying that his son, the master, is who he said he was. That's what salvation is all about. That's why when we come to Christ, we come to Christ not just as our Savior, but as our Lord. We have to be willing to embrace him as our Lord as well as our Savior. There's some people that teach today that, oh no, you can have Jesus as your Savior and not your Lord. That's ridiculous. Jesus never taught that. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want 
to taste of my salvation. If you want to become one of my disciples, you have to what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross, which is an instrument of death, and then follow me. Until you're willing to do that, you might want to rethink the idea of being a Christian or following Christ. Because although salvation is free, there's a tremendous cost involved personally to those who follow Christ. You look at the disciples. Those who chose to follow Christ after he he commanded them to follow him, and they followed. Matthew left his whole business, his tax-collecting business. Peter, his fishing business, others. And when you stop and you think about this, you know, that wasn't a, uh, just a, a passive thing to do. I mean, that was their way of living. That was how they made, provided for their family. They, and yet they left all that to follow Christ. That's the kind of sacrifice, that's the kind of cost that we're talking about here. And what happens is these people deny Jesus as Lord. Oh, they say it with their mouth, they say it with their lips, but the way they live and the way they teach what they teach is totally outside the bounds of what Christ taught. And then we saw the success of their operation. It says that many will follow them. That's very true. Uh, People flock to false teachers. They just continually flock to them, even after they're found out to be false. After 60 minutes or 20 minutes or 20-20 or whoever they are doing expose on some of these guys, there's still people that just deny the facts and continue to run to that kind of teaching. So many will follow them. And basically, they have a, a sensuality about their operation, which leaves a scar It says in verse 2, because of them, the way of truth is maligned or blasphemed. In other words, think of all the people that have heard these false teachers time and time again who have more sense and look at them and go, you know what, This this is a scam. This isn't real. These people are just after the almighty dollar. And then they lump all of Christianity, all the churches in there with these false teachers, and they just forget about the whole thing. That's the scar that's left. And it tells us in verse 3 why they did this is because of their greed. They will exploit you with false words because of their greed. The idea that they want more money, they want more stuff. And all you have to do is listen to some of these people for a couple minutes and you figure out real quick what they're after. They use words like, well, you just need to sow your seed to this ministry. Sow your $500 seed and God will give you back. $100 seed, even $5. They don't care what the amount is. They just want it. And they don't care who they're taking from. They could be taking from some old, little old grandmother that lives on on a a pension, Social Security, or whatever, barely enough to get by. And yet she's naive, naive enough to send these people money, and they take it. They don't care about her. They don't care about whether she can pay her PG and E bill or or whether she has food on her table. They just want to scam her into giving them her last little penny. That's what they're about. That's the scheme of their operation. Last week we began to look at their sentence and we saw this in verses 3 through 10. And we saw here that that this is not going to go on forever. They're getting away with some stuff right now, these false teachers, but it says their condemnation is from long ago. It's not idle and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, this is not, God is not up there just sleeping at the, uh, you know, in his chair 
thinking, hey, you know, what's going on down there? I don't even know. No, he knows exactly what's going on. And so Peter, in, in kind of an anxious way, wants to share with his readers the fact that he knows that God will one day judge them. And he gives us three examples. And we looked at the, last, the first one last week. In verse 4 it says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And we talked about that last week, what that was when those angels came to want to have relations with women back in Genesis. We talked all about that. And their whole motivation was to come up with an unredeemable race because angels can't be saved. If you could have a half-demon, half-man, maybe, maybe salvation wouldn't work for them. That was their thinking. And so God did not allow that to take place. And we looked at all that last week. And so he threw them in pits of darkness and he reserved them until the judgment time. And there was some gross immorality. It says they went after strange flesh. The angels were seeking human flesh. Somehow they took on the form of a, of a, of a man and they were wanting to, to cohabitate with the women of the day back then. And God said, I would not allow that to happen. There's not going to be this kind of stuff going on. And so the point is this. If God didn't spare these greater angelic beings, because angels are a lot much greater than us, as far as creation goes. If he didn't spare them, when they perverted his truth, when they wanted to do something outside the bounds of God, do you think that he's going to allow just false teachers who are just mere humans to get away with it? No. And that's what Peter's point is. He says, don't you think for a second they're getting away with anything. God will judge them. That's why it's so serious when we come to the the teaching and the preaching of God's Word that we are true to what God intended to say here. That we're not up here just making stuff up. That we're taking it line by line, verse by verse, going through it in its context so we understand what is being said. So the first example was these angels that he speaks of in verse 4. Well, the second example, look at this. He says in verse 5, And we'll look at this today. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I'm going to look at this here. For God not only would judge these fallen angels, but he also, it says, he didn't even spare the ancient world. What's he talking about here, the ancient world? The ancient world refers to that time of that, that, that group of people who were living at a time prior to the, the flood. That's the ancient world. All the ungodly who were back then in Noah's time. That's the ancient world. That's the people that he's referring to. And it says that he did not spare them. In other words, they didn't get away with their, their, their sinful behavior. God judged them. Sometimes I think that we live in a world where life decisions have no consequences. That's what we think. We think somehow that we can just go do whatever we want as long as we're not harming anybody. 
You know, when you stop and you begin to think just of some of the decisions that the courts are making and the, the political leaders are making in reference to abortion, in reference to homosexuality, in reference to marriage. I mean, I was just blown away. I read an article. I put it in the, the thing. I'll just read this quote for you. A few weeks ago, managers inside the United States Justice Department received a memo, and it was entitled, LGBT Inclusion at Work, The Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Manager. It was sent in advance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Pride Month. One of the, the instructions to the managers cited the need to verbally affirm the lifestyles of these individuals. It read this, Don't judge or remain silent. Silence will be interpreted as disapproval. Boy, talk about taking a stand for something that's ungodly. In other words, you couldn't be a Christian in that situation and say, you know, if I say anything, I'm going to get in trouble, so I just won't say anything. That's not good enough for them anymore. They want you to affirm The godless lifestyle. They want you to affirm what is sin in our God's eyes. And a lot of people are going to have to make a decision. Are they going to do that? Or are they going to stand up for what's right? That's the day we live in today. Well, back then, I think it was even worse. I mean, think about it. Out of all the people in the world... It was Noah and seven others that were saved, that were righteous. Everyone else was considered ungodly. I mean, I don't know how many people lived back then, but that's not a very good percentage. It's just not. And so Peter is saying, hey, not only did God judge these certain fallen angels... But he also didn't spare the ancient world. He saw all the the wickedness of man. And he saw that it was great upon the earth. Look back at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Kind of gives us the story here. What actually went on. Look at verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive. This is what we were talking about last week. And they took as their wives anyone they chose. These angels did, these demonic angels, demons. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not always abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. This weird race that they came up with. And they were mighty men of old, men of renown. Verse 5, When the Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
I mean, talk about evil. Talk about sinfulness. That every thought, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There was no good there. None. It was pure reprobate. It was just sold out to evil. In verse 6, and it says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Wow. And it grieved him to his heart. One thing I think we don't understand, even as Christians, I don't think we understand this, that when we sin, even as Christians, I think somehow, somehow it it grieves the heart of God. I know we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I know all of our sins have been forgiven. I know we just have to to go to the Savior and and, and we're washed as, as white as snow. I understand all that theology. But I don't believe that God is up in heaven and we're down here sinning under the grace of God and He's just turning a blind eye. I know that's not true because the Word of God in the New Testament tells us that when Christians sin, what happens? God disciplines him. So God somehow sees what's going on. Even though we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, even though His righteousness is imputed to our account, and we're made righteous before a holy God, somehow, because we're in this fallen state of being, we don't have a glorified body yet, don't think for a second when you sin that God just says, oh, it's cool, Jesus has got it covered, no problem. (laughs) That's not what's going on in heaven. And a perfect picture of that is right here. It says that it grieved him to his heart. I mean, it's one thing to grieve another human being's heart. It's not one thing to leave down your spouse in maybe a, a certain way or, 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 or whatever, or dis, disappoint them in some way. I mean, th- that touches your heart if you're a human being. You don't want to do that. But somehow when it comes to God, because he's not here physically with us, somehow we forget that his heart is grieved. That he's not just turning a blind eye to what's going on in our life if it's sinful. That he's very much aware of it. I told you this story before, but I remember hearing this Rick Holland tell this story. And he said that he had a couple that was, I guess they were engaged to be married. And they were coming to him for counsel. And... They made a bad decision that week and they ended up in a place by themselves and one thing led to the other and they crossed that line physically with each other. And they came back to Rick Holland the next week and he was in his office counseling them and, and he said, what's going on? There's something wrong. You know, what's wrong? Oh, you know, we, uh, you know, and they confessed. They said, we, we did something we shouldn't have done this past week. And he said, that's okay. He says, uh, someone saw you. <laughs> and they said, what? Someone, someone saw you. Of course, they thought he was speaking of an individual, a person. 
And they were just traumatized. How could they have? There's no way they could. There's no, you know, this. And they got on. And he goes, wait a minute. God saw you. And they almost went, whew, boy, okay. We thought you were talking about a person. (laughs) Right? See, that's how we justify our sins sometimes. Nobody sees. I mean, we're not hurting anybody else. It's okay. Beloved, it grieves the heart of God, the very God that gave His only Son to die on a cross for you. It grieves His heart when we sin. And that's what happened here. It says that the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him in His heart. Verse 7, so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, (laughs) thank God for Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The next verse says, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. See, the ancient world referred to all this sinful behavior, all these, these just people that were just continually doing evil. Today in San Francisco, they have a big parade, gay pride parade. I'm sure God looks down on that parade and it just grieves his heart. These people are having a fun time. They're dressing up in all weird things and doing all kind of weird stuff. But it grieves the heart of God. But it says, Second Peter, it says that God, however, preserved Noah, who was righteous, a true worshiper of God. Even though he was in this society with seven other people and everybody else was purely wicked, just evil, intent of their hearts continually, Noah was preserved. He was righteous. He somehow resisted that evil around him. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you're in a world and, man, it's just hitting you on every side? It doesn't matter. I mean, you can be watching some family show at home and all of a sudden a commercial comes on. It's like, oh, what do they have to show me that image for? You know, or whatever it might be. You know, you're trying to do the right thing and man, you just get bombarded with stuff continually. That's the kind of world we live in today. Back then it was even worse. But it says that Noah walked with God along with his wife, his sons and their wives. They were the seven others whom the Lord preserved in this ark. You know, more than a century before the flood came, God revealed to Noah his plan for judgment. If you look at Genesis chapter 6 again, look at what it says in verse 8 of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. 
God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh, all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And so here you have Noah understanding what's coming. And he goes on and he tells Noah to build this, this ark. And while building the ark, I mean, this wasn't like a weekend job, guys, okay? This was, you know, 100 years, 120 years, whatever. I mean, it was crazy. Think about it. One project that long. Yet he labored, it says, as a preacher of righteousness. He was continually warning people of the impending judgment and doom and this divine revelation that he had had. And he was continually calling them to repentance. Enoch even had a a similar message years earlier. In the seventh, in, 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 in Jude chapter 14, verse 15, it says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and all of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And it says that this is, was, was spoken about in, in the time of Enoch and that he prophesied this. It's amazing. God always gives that notice. He always gives you that gracious opportunity to turn from your sin. Well, back to Second Peter, it says that he, he preserved Noah, a preacher or a heralder of righteousness. That's what we should be doing in this world we live in. We should be preaching righteousness. We should be preaching that, that God... Um, not only is loving, but he's also holy. See, somehow we forget that. We go out and we try to evangelize and we just tell people, well, we want, we, you know, we want people to know that our God is a loving God. Well, yeah, he is a loving God. But don't leave out that he's also a holy God. And by the way, you're not holy. And neither am I. And so we got a lot of problems here. And that's why Christ came. That's, that's why the sacrifice was made to cover our sin. To cover our unholiness. We need to make sure that we preach and teach what the gospel says. Well, it says that he was a heralder of righteousness and with seven others, which was his family, when he, the Lord brought a flood upon the ungodly. That word flood there in the original, cataclysmos, is the word. We get the, the English word cataclysm. Okay, it's the idea of of some kind of a a a huge event. It was totally, uh, incredibly destructive event. In in Genesis chapter uh, seven, it gives us a little idea of what this flood was like. Genesis seven.
verse 10, it says, And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And in in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Somehow, you have to understand, before the flood happened, there was not only a canopy above the earth that, that gave moisture to the earth, but there was also great fountains, springs somehow, because there was no such thing as rain. They didn't know what rain was. And so somehow God built in this watering system. Well, at his word, he just let it all go. It says both the, the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and his three, son, three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and livestock according to its kind, and creepy thing, bird, winged, they went into the ark with Noah. Two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, so they could reproduce, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. And then it says there in verse 17, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up under the ark and rose high above the earth. Geoscientists and and other people, hydrologists, all kinds of people have done studies of this and said, no, this is is very feasible. This is not some sci-fi thing. Oh, you really believe in Noah and the ark and the flood? Yeah. And there's a lot of geological even evidence that proves it. And so it's, it's very important that we understand that this was a major flood. This wasn't just a little, you know, rising of the river. This covered everything. It had to because it was a judgment, and the judgment was to kill every, everything that was outside the ark, basically. And the idea was is that all the ungodly would perish as a result of this judgment that came upon them from God. It says that a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's a, a one word that basically characterized that ancient humanity, that ancient world. It refers to a complete lack of reverence, a complete lack of worship. No fear of God whatsoever was in these people at all. They didn't care. The early church fathers used that word to describe people who were atheists or people who were heretics. And just like the false teachers of Peter's time, the ungodly of Noah's time, through their rebellious immorality... Eventually, they brought the judgment of God upon themselves. And so Peter's saying, hey, not only did God judge these angels, but he also judged the ancient world. Don't forget. And then the third example he gives here is in verse 6. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. 
making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He gives us a third illustration here of divine judgment. He, he pulls out this example of Sodom and Gomorrah. At one time, these cities were thriving cities. They were on the Jordan Plain there, a wonderful plain basin, very fertile valley. Remember when Abraham and Lot were picking the places, they, he wanted to come here because it was very fertile. It was a wonderful place. But because of their gross sin, God condemned both of these cities to destruction. And it's very similar to what happened. You can look at it in uh, Genesis 19. What happened 450 years earlier with the flood. (laughs) Remember, they had already gone through this kind of thing once. And this should just show you how wicked the heart of man is. That God sends a judgment of a worldwide flood, wipes everybody out, they start over. 450 years later, they're at the same spot. And God's having to judge a certain element of this society once again. Well, here's the story of what actually happened. Look at verse uh, 1 of of Genesis 19. Most of us know this story, so we're not going to go into all the details here. But I just want to remind you of it because it parallels what happened with, in a way, with Noah and the ark. It says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. These are are, uh, holy angels. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. Well, remember, Lot lived there. Lot undoubtedly knew what happened in the town square. In the dark. It wasn't good things. This was a very, very wicked place. It says in verse 3, But he pressed them strongly, and he urged them. In other words, this is not a good idea. You do not want to spend time in the times, your night in the Times Square. So they turned aside to him, it says, and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now remember, these are angelic beings. These are supernatural beings. Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, it says both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, I guarantee these two beings were stunning in their appearance. They were angelic, you know. Um, there was something about them. Lot noticed them right away. So there was something about them visually that when Lot looked at them, he thought, whoa, these are, you know, I need these guys in my house. These are angels. These are good guys. He knew that somehow. Well, so did everybody else in the town. And because of their wickedness, it says they actually surrounded his house. Everybody in the town. All the men. And they called to Lot in verse 5. Where are the men who came to you tonight? 
Bring them out to us that we may know them. Trust me, they weren't talking about a little friendly chat over coffee. That's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance. In other words, he went out his front door where they all were, and he shut the door after him. In other words, he didn't want to allow these guys to have anything to do with these angels, these two men that were visiting in his house. Verse 7. And he said, I beg you, my brothers... Do not act so wickedly. He's appealing to them as one who lives among them. Some of these guys were probably his neighbors. I mean, this shows you how wicked they were. They didn't really care. And then he does something really stupid, which I don't understand, because it kind of showed a lack of trust in God to protect him and his family. But in verse 8, Lot says, Behold, I have two daughters who are virgins, they have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. You say, what kind of individual would do that? What kind of person would sacrifice his own daughters in this situation? He says, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. See, I, I really believe that that Lot understood who these two men were. And as horrible as it may seem to kind of push your daughters out there, and I think that was wrong on his part. I don't think he needed to do that. I think God could have protected him and them. But look at their answer. And maybe he knew what their answer was going to be. I don't know. Maybe he knew these guys were so wicked, they were so into their homosexuality that Even a a virgin woman wouldn't even appeal to them at all. They didn't care. Verse 9, it says, But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So then they turn the table on Lot and say, Who do you think you are? You're not one of us. It's kind of a mob mentality at this point. I guarantee you that kind of passion, that kind of mentality is very common with that kind of behavior. I guarantee you, you would have some problems today if you went downtown San Francisco and you carried a sign and you were by yourself and you said that, you know, whatever the sign would say, homosexuality is a sin before the eyes of a holy God. Do you think that people would not attack you? You bet. They, 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 the police probably wouldn't even let you do that. <laughs> because you'd be causing a riot. That's the mentality here. This passion runs so deep. It's so evil. It's so wicked. They don't care about anything but themselves. And it says, we're going we're gonna to mess you up worse than we we're going to mess them up. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and he drew near to break the door down. They're they're, they're literally going to crush the door down. In verse 10 it says, But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They spared Lot. 
Verse 11, And they struck with blindness, blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. I mean, that's, that's how vile, that's how wicked, that's how deep this passion goes. They're literally blind at this point. They're blinded, and they're still trying to get in to get to these guys. Sick. Verse 12, then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, daughters-in-laws, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people have become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-law's son-in-law, who were married to his daughters, get up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot up Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, almost not believing what was about to happen here. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape For your life, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and is a little... It is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my wife will be saved. And he said, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire. From the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. says, Abraham went up early in the, in the morning in that place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God had destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Peter is reminding us that God does not look favorably on sin. He just doesn't. And it doesn't matter whether it's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was very wicked, or that besetting besetting sin that we may have in our own heart or our own life. 
That word destruction there in, in Second Peter has the idea of just a complete devastation, a complete reduced to ashes kind of a mentality. And that's exactly what happens. You know, archaeologists can't even find these two cities. Extinct. Even though they've looked. They've even had the opportunity. They thought, well, maybe they were under a part of the Dead Sea. And as the Dead Sea is retracted and shrunk down, they've done excavations over there and they, they haven't been able to find it. See, God, divine judgment not only buried the people's bodies under these ashes, but it also plunged their souls into eternal judgment. And that's the example that we have here. And so God is saying, through, through Peter, saying, hey, you don't think I'm going to judge these false teachers? Look at what my track record is. Look at what I've done in the past. And he says the reason that he did this, that they would become an example, verse 6, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. It's an example. He used it as an illustration, a sample of what was going to happen. God always reveals the wickedness before he destroys it. He did that to Abraham. He revealed the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham back in Genesis 18. He implored the Lord to withhold his judgment. If only maybe ten inhabitants could be found there. They couldn't find even ten, the Bible says. And so when you stop and you think of God's judgment, don't think lightly of it. It's something that we should take very seriously. Verse 7, it says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, that's encouragement to me. Out of this whole mess, those are words of encouragement. That if he rescued righteous Lot, Go all the way down to verse 9. The rest of its parentheses, we'll read it, but all the way down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Remember, the people he's writing to in, in, in 2 Peter are the same people he's writing to in 1 Peter who were dealing with all kinds of trials and issues going on. Persecution, all kinds of things were going on to them. And he wanted them to know, you know what, you're no different than anybody else. God can save you out of that. So many times we get in a trial, we get in a situation in our life, and we think somehow God has walked away. Because maybe it's not panning out the way we want it to pan out, or when we want it to pan out. We need to be patient with the Lord. Because God knows how to rescue the godly ones from trials. He knows how to do that. Because He did it for Lot, He did it for Noah. He can surely do it for us. Our trials aren't as great as theirs. Verse 8 says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, (coughs) he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The idea was that as Lot lived among these people, he was just getting 
kind of worn down. I don't know about you, but I feel that way sometimes. You just, you, you look around you and you just, you know, whether it's a political process or whether it's stuff that people are involved in today, you know, we become less and less sensitive to things. You know, you see things on television today that you would never have seen on television 20 years ago or 10 years ago. You hear words on television that you would never hear. You weren't allowed to say certain things. Now it's like, you know what? It's just like anything's game almost. It doesn't matter anymore. And that's the, the state of our, of our society. That's where it's gone. And what he's saying here in verse 8 is that, you know what? This righteous man lived among them day after day, and he was tormented by their lawless deeds. He was tormented by everything that he saw and he heard. Over in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it tells us what our attitude should be concerning wickedness or concerning sin. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, kind of lists off the marks of a true Christian. It says, let love be genuine. And then it says this, abhor or hate. What is evil? Hold fast to what is good. Do we abhor what is evil? Do we hold fast to what is good? I think even within Christianity, with, even within the church, we've seen kind of a, de- a degradation, you might say, of, of morals. You know, we can watch certain TV shows and laugh at their sick humor. And yet... I guarantee if I put the same TV show up here on the big screen and we were all sitting here, we wouldn't laugh. We'd, oh, how horrible is that? How disgusting is that? And yet, in our living room, we'll turn it on and, ah, that was pretty funny. What's going on? I mean, do we abhor what is evil? Are we holding on to what is good? In Proverbs chapter 8, I just want to read this verse for you. Verse 13, it says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. There's nothing wrong with hating evil. Nothing wrong at all. The difference is you have to remember there's a difference between the sin and the sinner. See, the problem with the church today even when it comes to those in the homosexual movement, is they turn their hatred to the individuals. They hate the people. Not the sin. And the point is this, is that, you know what? These individuals who are part of this lifestyle, they're blinded by the enemy. They need... The saving touch of a Savior. They need God to transform their heart. They need someone to come alongside them and share with them the true love of God. Not just to judge them down their righteous noses all the time. 
If anybody we should be showing the, the genuine love of Christ to, it's people of that ilk, people who are, are blinded, who are caught up in their sin. Those are the people that need to hear the gospel, the saving power of the gospel. We shouldn't turn and run the other way. And yet there's still nothing wrong with hating the sin because God hates the sin. But He gave His only begotten Son for the, for the sinner of which we're all one. It says there in Second Peter that He was oppressed by sensual conduct of these unprincipled men has the idea that just outrageous behavior and the unprincipled aspect just means it's unrestrained. This is nothing off the, off the mark there. And it just continually oppressed him. It continually wore him down. He was tormented, it says. But I love verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. See, we're not the ones, we're not the executioners here. We don't come out and hand down the judgment. That's God's job. Our point is to get the gospel to these individuals. If they reject the gospel, well, then that's their business. God's going to judge them. But that's his, we don't pronounce judgment on them. He does. Because he is perfectly able to keep the unrighteous, it says, under punishment until the day of judgment. They're not going to get away with it. And then it says in verse 10, And especially those who indulge in the lust of deviling passion and despise authority. If you know anything about that lifestyle at all, that's definitely what it is. It's defiling passion and defiling and despising authority. That's what, what the issue is from the, the very beginning. They don't want to do things God's way. They want to do it their own way. So when we look at this world we live in and we compare it to these examples, whether it's these angels who were fallen, whether it's the ancient world, or, or whether it's even Sodom and Gomorrah, we see a lot of parallels And what Peter's point is, is you know what? All those are the same way God feels about someone who would stand up and teach something that would be purposely false to God's people. A false prophet or a false teacher. He throws them in with those three examples and says that they will be judged. Next week we're going to look a little bit about the characteristics of these false teachers and close out chapter 2. But the one thing we need to be doing as a nation, I think, is turning our hearts back to God, especially as a church. You know, it doesn't look too bright. You know, I, one pastor told me one time, he said, uh, before the last election, he said, well, he goes, you know, there is a, I see kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, and I saw him after the election. I said, you know that, that light that you saw? I said, I don't know what it was, but it wasn't good. You know, um, 
I mean, we don't have to be pessimistic about everything, but we do have to be realistic. And until our nation turns their heart back to God and realizes that, you know what, it's God who has blessed us all these years. You know, you look at any country, they're in a cycle. You know, they go through cycles of blessings, and then they get prideful, and then they become self-dependent, and then they become greedy, and, and then they end up right back to where they started. And here we live in a country that has been one of the, the greatest nations on earth to help people and to lend people money. And yet today we sit here as the biggest debtor nation in the world. It's amazing. So we have to really get on our knees before the Lord and ask God to turn the hearts of our leaders back to Him. And we need to do our work in you know, reaching out to those who are lost and uh, sharing the gospel with them on an individual basis as well. Well, let's close our time this morning in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are amazed at how your judgment uh, doesn't miss anything. Lord, um, your judgment is, is truly patient in every way. And yet, when it falls, and it will fall one day, Father, that you will uh, carry out your judgment on the wicked on this earth. And Lord, we pray that we would understand who we are in Christ. That we're, just like Lot, just like Noah, we're protected. We're in the ark of Christ. Uh, Your judgment will not fall on your children. But with that being said, help us not to take lightly any sinful behavior that may be active in our lives because you don't take that lightly. And you do discipline us. You don't judge us, but you discipline us as a loving father would. And Father, I pray that we would understand when we sin, we grieve your heart. And we thank you for the forgiveness and mercy that's granted to us through Christ. But Lord, I pray that we would live lives that are exemplary before a lost and dying world, that they would look at us and notice something different. Whether it's in deed or attitude or word, that somehow the love of Christ would come through our lives and that you would open up doors of opportunity for us to share the gospel message with those who've yet to hear or come to understand. And Lord, we just thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. We pray that if anyone here today has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that he is yet to transform your heart, I pray that you would cry out to him. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me the way of salvation. Help me to understand. Father, I pray that you would grant them grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.